dedicated to making the classics readable, relevant, and fun. As two nerdy bookworms, we appreciate the role of classic lit, but we won't get too academic about it. We'll talk about the books we love and the books we loathe, and help stock your TBR pile with old and new reads for every literary taste. Today, we're discussing Jane Eyre, chapters 27 through the end. Hey, Chelsea. Hi, Sarah. How are you today? I'm good. I am excited to talk about the end of Jane Eyre. I loved talking with you about volumes one and two. This is probably my least favorite section as a reader, but there's still a ton to discuss. Agreed. It starts to feel like a little bit of a slog. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Like literally as Jane is like trudging through the rainy English countryside and getting all cold and muddy, you kind of feel like you're there too. And you're like, oh my goodness, can we wrap Uh this up already? (laughs) (laughs) But I agree with you. There is a lot to talk about. It's really good. Yeah. So when we last left Jane, she had just discovered that her beloved Mr. Rochester, whom she had turned into an idol, she told us, (laughs) was married to Bertha Mason, the madwoman living in the attic, and that all of the creepy laughter, the fire, the uh, trying on of the veil was all leads back to to Bertha. We got our answers, some of those gothic mystery questions. And Jane has to decide what to do now. I think that the couple of chapters where Jane is deciding what to do and she and Rochester are having such conversations <laughs> about what she's going to do and when she ultimately decides to leave are... Some of readers' favorites. We get some really iconic lines. There's a lot to dissect. And if you are a big fan of Jane as a heroine, this is such an empowering part of the book for her, where you really see her stand up for herself. And that's always fun to read. Yeah. Do you, like, how do you read these chapters and and has it changed? Like, were there ever moments where you as a reader were like, oh, just stay and be his mistress and go off to Europe? Or were you always firmly like hoping for Jane to to leave and get her independence? I don't remember the first time that I read. So maybe that time I was thinking like, oh, just stick around. Who cares? Maybe. I don't really remember well enough. But certainly over the last few times that I've read this book, I just get more and more annoyed with Rochester. I think that his emotional manipulation and the way that he speaks to her and just everything about him in these scenes annoys me so much. I it just makes me hate him and I'm like, yeah, get out of there. I agree. It's <laughs> for me same. I I've never that I remember had that reading experience. Which is not to say that that that's like an incorrect reading experience. I think that there's room to to root mm-hmm. for that. But it is more about my feelings towards Rochester and not like a moralistic like yeah component. Um 
And I think that's an interesting aspect of Jane's choice is it really becomes more about her her independence and her making this decision for herself and her realization that if she becomes his mistress, he'll grow tired of her quite soon. That makes her leave rather than some sort of external ethics or morality around the situation. And I think that's pretty progressive for the time period and pretty interesting. Definitely. I think just her leaning on her intuition of this is what I've got to do. Like I said, it's really empowering. Mm-hmm. And I I think it's no wonder why this is one of the most iconic parts of the book. I think when I read these, I just always end up so exhausted by the end when she finally does leave, again, because of Rochester. And part of me always wishes that she would tell him off for his behavior yeah. rather than constantly telling him, no, this is what I have to do for me, always explaining herself. I I often wish that she would slap him before she goes and like really address the way that he treats her versus just her moral compass that's really driving her. Totally. Yeah. She forgives him immediately, she tells us. She she pities him and all of this. I think my my favorite line is something that follows one of the worst things he says and does to her, which is when he's like, why won't you become my mistress? You don't have a family. No one's going to step in. Nobody cares. And which is so terrible to say to somebody and also just makes you wonder how much of his pursuit of Jane was kind of premeditated around that, that she was somebody who nobody would step up and and rescue from the situation. But I love what follows, which is when Jane says, I care for myself. And I I think that's, there are a lot of great quotable lines in this, but that to me is my favorite where she is, I mean, it's, it's straightforward. I don't have to analyze that line. I care for myself and that's enough for her to leave. I really like that part too. And yeah, it's, it's such a good, I don't know, it's just such a good exchange to bring up when we're talking about Rochester and Jane and their relationship and is he preying on her or is it a true romance? So there's there's just so much to read between the lines in here and we could deep dive just their conversation for a really long time on this podcast. I don't want to spend too much more time on it, but I am curious to know what your students usually think or what they usually say. What what do the teenagers think when they read this? Are they like, go Jane, go, get rid of him, leave. We love your independence. Or are they kind of like, well, if you love him, why don't you just stick around? Definitely more the first. I mean, they are, they can tend to be more romantic, but I think even for them, this is not a romance that they really root for. I mean, one of my favorite moments of teaching this would always be like when they came in after having read the proposal scene and just like, you know, 
there would be no kind of warm up to that class discussion. It would be just a stream of teenagers into the room just like, oh, my God, (laughs) he's the worst. (laughs) Like having to talk about it, parse through every because his proposal is like all over the place like that, too, where he's manipulating her, confusing her grabbing her and not letting her go Mm -hmm. and so no i i think that they when she decides to leave you know i think maybe some of the moralizing can annoy them as it does with adult readers at times too but yeah they're like get out of there jane and i think that some of them hold on to hope that she's going to meet somebody new (laughs) which she kind of does but (laughs) which we'll talk about um because they like her and i think she is a very relatable character for a lot of teens who don't see themselves as like you know the belle of the ball or the the most sought after girl in the room and um yeah so i i don't recall ever having a student who really desperately wanted Jane to stick around. I think she sets a pretty great example for teen readers. Mm -hmm. Well, you started to hint that Jane does meet somebody else. So I think we can probably skim over some of the, it's like a couple chapters where she's just wandering. And I'm not saying that there isn't anything worthwhile to read in there or pluck out it's very gothic when she but it's leaves not her money exciting. in the coach oh that part is heartbreaking <laughs> <laughs> yes and it's it's part of her journey i i appreciate it for that but then she makes some friends <laughs> kind of she happens upon some people who agree to take her in and take care of her and she finds a different position in the world So let's talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So she stumbles upon the river's home. And I don't know. We have said over and over how symbolic all of the names are in this book without really breaking down the symbols. But I think anytime we see rivers, water, we can think rebirth, like baptism Mm -hmm. kind of, especially... When one of the characters' name is Sinjin, spelled St. John, right? So we have like this (laughs) symbolic entering of the river's home where Jane is going to be kind of washed, washed anew. And yeah, she she meets these friends, mostly Mary and Diana, the two sisters, the river's sisters. And then their very strange, handsome brother, Sinjin Rivers, who is a pastor who has a desire to be a missionary. He wants to go to India. And Jane basically falls totally in love with the women of this household. Like, they're so like-minded. They love to think and talk about the same things as her. And I, I love that part of her journey, that it's like this female friendship that seems to kind of save her. I agree. I end up really liking those characters and their relationship with Jane. And it has to be a little bit inspired by Charlotte's own sisters, I have to think. And just that sisterly relationship, it's hard to imagine the 
Bronte women completely having every female relationship in their novels be contentious and and fraught here. Um, and so we do get a little bit of that coziness. And they, like, she's in a cottage with them. And they, like, bake together and sew together. And it is really sweet. And she almost has this big sisterly vibe with them where she's teaching them things. They're also teaching her German, I believe. Um, but they are actually preparing to be governesses, which I find really interesting. I think that there's something interesting going on in the fact that Jane basically rescues them from that fate. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I like that aspect of their relationship as well. Yeah. And she, you know, maintains her her fierce independence she insists on finding a job and she becomes a teacher at the local school, which she doesn't love, <laughs> but she does. Um, Charlotte Bronte hated being a teacher. And so you see a lot of that come out in in this novel. Um, but the the other romantic or a potential romantic relationship that develops is, of course, her and Sinjin. And Bronte really sets him up as a foil to Mr. Rochester, right? He's he's Rochester's opposite in so many ways, down to the imagery she uses where whenever we would see Jane and Rochester have conversations, it was always by firelight and candles were always a big part of that that imagery flames sinjin is always described in cool icy marble tones he's also very handsome where rochester is not and he's very stoic and logical so totally different there are scenes where it's snowing outside it's literally winter time it's you can totally see how atmosphere impacts the plot here which i do love mm-hmm. and especially if you're reading a gothic you need atmosphere the other thing i think is so interesting about sinjin or saint john is his relationship to love and passion mm-hmm. compared to Rochester. So Rochester is very much like, I see it, I want it, I'm going to have it. And St. John, he is in love with Miss Rosamond, like a really pretty woman in the village. But he like gets all pent up and angry basically about his sexual attraction to her. And he is just so weird about it. <laughs> yeah, weird <laughs> is so the best way to describe it. it. And he's really denying his feelings. And I think that that contrast with Rochester is maybe the most interesting. Yeah. Oh, totally. It. I like that element because it does kind of, I don't know, it emphasizes some of the commentary Bronte seems to be making about love and passion and desire because where she certainly was critiquing Rochester's willingness to, you know, say to hell with it all. I want Jane. I I'm going to have her. She's not 
she's certainly not in favor of the way Sinjin handles his feelings for Rosamond. Um, his refusal to acknowledge his desire and his passion. And, and Rosamond clearly loves him back. And he just, it, it's, he seems to feel that denial of that side of himself and denial of pleasure really in any way is necessary for his for his spiritual welfare and i think bronte is arguing against that maybe and for some sort of balance between these two states of being yeah she certainly doesn't seem favorable towards sinjin saint john he's mostly saint john in my book so i'll just keep referring to him <laughs> that way um, I also, I just, I think there is that religious element at play here. I think there's something about class mm-hmm. and power. Rochester, it, he has this estate. He is wealthy. He has a sizable fortune. He's able to do whatever he wants without consequence. And St. John is in a different boat. He He's a man, so he certainly has more power over his circumstances than Jane or his sisters would, but he works for a living. And there's, there's a difference there. It's interesting, too, in his feelings towards Rosamond, because she is extremely wealthy and could give him some, a leg up in that, that regard, but he also seems to feel like denying that level of comfort is important. That, you know, working and being a missionary is essential to his understanding of what it means to be good. Yeah, that totally makes sense. I I think it's interesting. He doesn't, I'm trying to think about his interactions with Jane in that regard too. Like, he's pretty pushy with her about the importance of hard work. He really wants her to find a job. And then later pushing her on essentially becoming a missionary's wife, which we should talk about those contrasting proposal scenes. But I, you know, Jane just seems to be able to manage him so much better than Rochester. Like, Mm -hmm. she just is pretty pretty neutral. And I think because her feelings and emotions aren't really involved, she's really just able to have that distance to not be torn about everything with St. John. So their interactions and their communication is so completely different from her and Rochester. Yeah. The way she is around him, I I find confusing at times because she clearly knows what she wants. And she ultimately, he proposes to her he basically says, you were made to be a missionary's wife. This is your role and you will be my missionary's wife. Um, and I you know, want to take you to India and you're going to do all of this good work and um, whatnot. And she ultimately is able to tell him, no, she she would gladly go with him to India, even though she knows she says this multiple times that she's very delicate and frail and going to India will kill her. Um, Which could be true. Could be very true. Um, But not as his wife, that she'll go, you know, as his companion and, you know, as quote unquote sister. 
Um, and he, you know, he refuses that. But she also like talks a lot or thinks a lot about how how much she's under his spell and how hard it is for her to not just go along with his his mandates and what he says. And then even after she refuses him, he starts being a little bit more gentle around her. And she's almost on the verge of saying yes when she decides to go back to Rochester. And we'll, we'll talk about why she <laughs> goes back to Rochester momentarily. But I find... I find her relationship with him very confusing and something that I don't can't quite make sense of in terms of how I understand her character, how I understand the message of the book. It almost just seems like a way to like make the third volume as long as the other two and draw the whole thing out a little bit longer. I think it has a lot to do with sex. Mm. I hate to be that English teacher, but <laughs> um, but it's really interesting because he is essentially asking her the same thing as Rochester, mm-hmm. which is go away with me to a different country. Mm-hmm. Rochester asks her to do so as his mistress, and we know that they would have an intimate sexual relationship without being married. Mm-hmm. Jane suggests to St. John, I'll go with you unmarried, which is what she said no to, Mm -hmm. to Rochester, Mm -hmm. but they wouldn't be having sex with each other. Mm -hmm. Totally different relationship. Yeah, no, that, and that is, I think that piece is why the, her like being under his spell is confusing to me. Like, what is she getting out of this? Like, yeah, I I feel like in part, maybe it's because she loves Mary and Diana so much. She doesn't want to disappoint them. They seem to kind of be rooting for this relationship. I, yeah, I, I just find the whole, like, where she just gets into this mindset of, I was I was losing myself and I thought that I might be swayed by his arguments to be so confusing after she left Rochester because she was so passionate about about him. Yeah, that makes sense. I wonder if it if, if it's um I think I've read it before as her deep desire for family mm-hmm. and belonging. I I think that that's one reading. And then I also just think if we are really looking at it from just that moralistic standpoint where she was really sticking to her convictions with Rochester, maybe she's being swayed in this situation because her conviction is that she does want to teach. She wants to serve others. She wants to be useful and helpful. Um. It, it is a little weird because it does contrast with her character so much, but I think she's probably also just tired. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. Well, and I, I do like both of those readings a lot. I think that maybe in part her interest in going to India is, you know, like we talked about before, where with Rochester, when she leaves him, it's not about so much external views of ethics and morality. But Sinjin is very influenced by 
what he thinks people perceive of him and what looks good externally and what is considered an ethical good life. And so maybe this is Jane's moment to kind of decide between those two things. And maybe she's in part swayed by that idea of living a life that is very much morally perceived as good. Um, And again, I, I think a lot of what Bronte is doing with the foil of these two characters is suggesting some sort of balance, like a balance between you know, following your passion, whatever it, wherever it leads you and listening to society's dictates and, and rules. But you also mentioned family, which is so important to, to the end of this story and very much the, the fairy tale ending of this story, which is that not only does Jane inherit a bunch of money, but she learns that the rivers are actually her cousins and she has a family after all. <laughs> How nice. <laughs> uh, it's a little tidy, mm-hmm. but it, yeah, it it's just nice. I mean, I am really, it's probably the happiest that I am for her. Yes. At any point in the novel, this is probably where I feel the happiest for Jane. I agree. Yeah, to me, this is the fairy tale ending. The, you know, the realization that she's actually an heiress. The fact that she has this family who she already loves. She shares her her inheritance with them, which gives her tremendous pleasure. Um, yeah, it's it's really nice, and it gives her a reason to stay in these women's lives, even once she ultimately does leave. So let's talk about what changes her mind and why she goes back to Rochester. We've got money as a factor here. She has money of her own, and therefore she's got a little bit more power in her situation. Uh, But there's also something else that's huge, which is he, she comes back to him and he's a completely different person. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's it's so interesting. (laughs) Um, So Sinjid has like basically, you know, restarted his proposal efforts. And, you know, Jane is, is saying, you know, and thinking to herself that she could resist his wrath, but she grew pliant under his kindness and, you know, Basically, it seems like she's about to acquiesce to be his wife. And then um, she hears a voice somewhere cry, Jane, Jane, Jane. And of course, it's it's Rochester's <laughs> voice. And she rushes off. She realizes that that connection is still strong. He needs her. I mean, it's a very like Beauty and the Beast fairy tale like for sure. Yeah. Um, and yeah. And then, as you said, what she finds, who she finds is someone in many ways completely different. 
because Bertha set the house on fire and he was seriously injured. He is now blinded and scarred and needs assistance for everyday tasks. And so when we come to the question of, is this a happily ever after story? Um, It's a little bit complicated. I think it is because I, and I, I would say, you know, certainly it is for Jane. Yes. I don't, I don't know about Rochester. (laughs) You don't, I mean, he's like really happy to have her there, but um, for Jane, this is the best case scenario because she not only gets love, but she also has power. He needs her now. Mm -hmm. And she is just in a completely different social situation than she was previously. This is a completely different power dynamic in their relationship. And it just seems like the best case scenario for her to be with him, as wild as that might sound. Yeah, I think I think that's exactly right. She has money now. She has friends and family now. So in that sense as well, she's meeting him more as an equal, even without the accident. But with his injuries... It, it is a very much a, a sort of power. And, you know, he says that he doesn't want her to be, have to become a caretaker of a man twice her age. And I mean, I suppose that's another way to read it. But like you said, that's not how Jane perceives the situation. To her, this is very much the ideal. She wanted to be his equal. And at the end, she is at least his, his equal, which is not to say, I mean, uh, like symbolically, all of this, I think is mostly how we're talking about it, where Rochester feels that, um, you know, or he, he really relies on her and needs her assistance and her, her aid. And she has kind of the power to to fulfill or or deny that, which is a huge power. Agreed. Yeah. The the equality piece is really important here. And I don't know. I mean, does the ending make me happy? I'm pretty indifferent to it. But is it a happily ever after for Jane? I do think so. And when I think about, we're, we're going to get to, this is like the question part of the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> we're asking all the questions now. Um is it a happily ever after that makes me think, is this a romance mm-hmm. novel? It really does follow the pattern of a romance, mm-hmm. but I don't find it very romantic. Yeah, I I agree. It, I mean, it ends with, you know, a happily ever after or at least a hap- happily for now. <laughs> we can imagine what becomes of, of these two. She does give us a little like 10 years later epilogue. <laughs> like, um, I I think one of the parts that makes me genuinely happy for Jane is the way that she teases him when she comes back. Yeah. She never had the power to, 
to do that before. He was always the one kind of chiding and teasing, if that's what we want to call it. It's often straight up cruelty. Um, and she just kind of had to to take it. And when she comes back, she's like, oh, yeah, I met someone else. He proposed. He was so handsome <laughs> and kind of, you know, building up his jealousy in the same way he did to hers. And I I think those moments kind of show what we were talking about, that level of equality, not not just that she has has money and family and and, you know the ability to care for him, but that she can loosen up a little bit around him. <laughs> and she still calls him sir and her master and all that. Again, I think that that's partly like Charlotte Bronte's own stuff. Um, <laughs> but yeah, she feels freer with him to me as a reader. And that yeah. that part does, you know, make me happy for her. Yeah, I do like that. And this is a coming of age novel. So we've seen her grow into herself from just being a little girl who was trying to stand up for herself and find her way and balance her passion with the expectations that were placed on her. And we get to see her grow into a woman. And by the end of the book, I think we've really seen a character growth journey from Jane. And that is very satisfying. Absolutely. All right. Before we kind of pose our big final question about whether this is a feminist text, I just wanted to ask you, since you've studied this book in grad school, do you have any insights or interpretations for why this book ends with Sinjin? (laughs) So there's kind of this little epilogue at the end where we learn that 10 years later, Jane and Rochester, they've had some kids. They're very happy. His sight is coming back a little bit so he can see his children. And also, by the way, Sinjin's probably going to die soon. <laughs> he's he's in India. He never took a wife. And then it just ends with like him praying Sinjin praying and saying that he's ready to be delivered quickly into death. And I have always found that to be extremely strange. I don't remember if we ever discussed that part in depth. Um, I will say, I mean, it's like really standard for an epilogue like this that you've got to say where every character is. Mm -hmm. Bronte's describing where everybody ended up. But like you said, he gets three whole paragraphs. Yeah. That's a lot. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Personally, I think if we go back to our conversation about him being a foil for Rochester and that the goal is to find that balance between the super pedantic, moralistic religious life compared to the following your passions, just going for whatever you want. Um, And if Bronte really wants everybody to end up somewhere in the middle in her ideal world, um, St. John doesn't. Yeah. And he misses out on love. Mm-hmm. Because he doesn't. Um, I mean, it's that 
first sentence in the second to last paragraph, St. John is unmarried. He will never marry now. I think that that says it. I mean, it's like, look at all these people who were happy in some way, but he wasn't able to, he wasn't able to have that passionate side of himself um, unleashed in any way. Mm. I think that's a good, good reading. It feels a little vengeful to me <laughs> to just like end with, but I, I think that, yeah, the, the kind of the reading about the balance of what he represents makes a ton of sense. I, th- I have to wonder if he is based on someone in Charlotte's real life. I wonder that as well. Because I think Rochester, like you can definitely read him as fantasy fulfillment for her. Maybe there was a guy like, you know, running the house while she was a governess that she had a crush on that. Like that's easy to make that leap to. But St. John, there's a specificity to him that feels like this is a person she knows and doesn't like. Mm -hmm. I feel the same way. And I think that's why those last few paragraphs made me feel vengeful. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, maybe we'll do some research on on that and report back if if we find anything. So, okay. We'll leave that question somewhat unanswered and go to... Our, our final question before we get into our pairings of, is this book a feminist text or a proto-feminist text as it's often described? And we, of course, got into this much more with our class. If you want to sign up on Patreon, you can watch a replay of that, but we have to touch on it here too. Yes. So I am going to go ahead and say yes. It is definitely a proto-feminist text, and I think it is a feminist text. Um, I very much reject the notion that just because a book ends in marriage or just because a significant portion of the plot is devoted to love, that that negates feminism. I just, especially as a romance reader, I just don't subscribe to that. So I, and I think that that's one argument that people could make against it is that like, Mm -hmm. well, Jane's obsessed with Rochester the whole time. Of course, it's not a feminist text. I don't, I don't buy into that. Um, Is it a feminist text as I would like it to be from my current vantage point on feminism and intersectionality? (laughs) Maybe not then. I think um, Bertha as a character is really um, a main source of contention with this question because of the way she's treated. But sometimes feminist texts are exploring that intentionally. And I mean, we saw that when we read The Awakening, I think we would say certainly this is a feminist text, but it doesn't mean that the women in the novel all do great things and get their way. Um, But it is exploring feminist issues through the narrative. And I certainly think that's what Charlotte Bronte is doing here. And it's, it's really easy to read it that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I think it is, I, I think that the, like you say, the questions that a book is asking to me are often 
as important, if not more important than the answers it gives. Of course, the Mm -hmm. answers are important too, but the questions this book is asking are certainly feminist questions about women's independence in terms of finances and marriage and a right to adventure and being intellectual and edgy, all of those things. The answers it gives may not be ones that we like from our modern perspective. It's definitely not an intersectional (laughs) text in any way. And I mean, certainly Bertha is the prime example of that. But to me, this book really suggests that there's pretty much one way to be a good, strong woman in the world, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. like there, it, and it really does involve a lot of specific morals, very, very like Anglican, English, Victorian morals. I mean, even the French women are like <laughs> demonized. Um, Adele grows up to be okay, but she couldn't quite get rid of all of her, <laughs> you know, French feelings. <laughs> so, so Sometimes the way the book treats women who are not Jane and who are not like Jane, um, even somebody like Rosamond Oliver, who seems perfectly fine, but, you know, she's, she, I don't know. I think you get what I'm saying. The, the book has a pretty singular view of ideal femininity, and that does not feel very feminist to me. Um, I also, but I agree with you in terms of like the kind of rejecting the idea that just because there's a romance at the heart of this book, it can't be feminist. And I, I have heard that argument before. I, uh, a lot, (laughs) but most notably, I went to a lecture in grad school from, that was given by Laura Mulvey, who is like one of the, uh, a very renowned feminist thinker. She she is awesome. She writes a lot about film and the male gaze in film and has a lot of articles and books about Hitchcock and particularly how Hitchcock treats the blondes in his movies. And she's fantastic. But um, the lecture that I went to, she did compare Wuthering Heights and Jane Eyre and kind of boiled it down to like Wuthering Heights is a better book for women because Jane Eyre suggests that to be happy, you have to marry the man in the big house. And Wuthering Heights explores the idea that doing that can cause utter destruction. And I find find that argument interesting in terms of how to think about the way Jane Eyre and Wuthering Heights talk to each other, because they certainly do. But not a reason to dismiss what Jane Eyre has to say about womanhood and feminism. Yeah. I, so I certainly lean towards proto-feminist in describing this, especially because of what you mentioned with it. It very much seems like it's offering, this is the way to be a good woman. And I, I totally agree with that. I think Charlotte is really holding Jane up as an example. Um, So I, and when we read it with our modern lens, seeing how other women are treated in the novel, I I think that that's where it grates against 
you know, modern feminism. But in Victorian England, there was only one way to be a woman. And so even though Charlotte Bronte is offering up just this other one way in her book, it grates against that notion of Victorian womanhood, of the angel in the house, of stifling your passions and desires in ways that were really radical and subversive at the time. And so proto-feminist texts, yes, absolutely. Modern, in some ways, not in every way. Yeah. And I think worthwhile because of some of the roots it has um, in proto-feminist and feminist thinking. Um, I would encourage if, if Jane ending the book Married to Rochester grates on anyone in terms of what this book is saying about womanhood, I'd, I'd recommend checking out Wuthering Heights because, you know, these are two sisters who are authors who were talking about these ideas constantly with each other writing these books around the same time, reading each other's work. And so they are exploring the same questions and arriving at different answers. And so I think they're fantastic companion novels. I think Wuthering Heights is a harder read um, just in terms of structure and and language. But um, yeah, I, I think that to, you know, to let just one book speak for like feminism of the Victorian times was, you know, not, not the way to to go and just keep exploring um, other things that were written at, at this time. But yeah, I, I think I agree. It's a proto-feminist text, good one to read to get to some of the starts of these questions. All right, Sarah, I think we probably do have some feminist texts in our pairings. Yeah, I am really excited to talk about our pairings because I just, like, same when we talked about Pride and Prejudice, this is a book that is so pervasive in terms of its impact on on literature. And there are tons of retellings. There are just tons of novels inspired by. And then I think it just, it affects books that you maybe wouldn't even think about. So Chelsea, what is your first pairing for Jane Eyre? I am just going to go with a retelling right away. Jane Steele by Lindsay Fay is a retelling that I read. Oh gosh, it's been quite a few years ago now. And so I can't verify if it holds up to my current reading standards, but I remember really liking it at the time. And I, yeah, I remember devouring it. I remember, I definitely read it. I think I read it in between the first time that I read Jane Eyre. So I definitely had the story in mind, but before I read Jane Eyre for any grad school situations, and that was probably exactly the right time to read it. Just, it was, it's really fun and the first line of the book, I believe, um, I have to remember, is, reader, I murdered him. And so Jane Steele is the heroine in this novel. And I think one of the most fun parts is that she actually references the book Jane Eyre throughout 
And um, it's it's written in the same style where Jane Steele is narrating her autobiography, essentially, and she's referencing the reader. And so those references to Jane Eyre are really fun to pick up on. Her life follows pretty much the same trajectory, you know, cruel aunt who sends her to boarding school, horrible boarding school. But Jane Steele takes a different route than Jane Eyre, and she's a vigilante, and she murders the people who knock her down and just, like, leaves a trail of bodies in her wake. And that's a lot of fun to read about. (laughs) (laughs) So she... It does end up being a governess. Like she is essentially in hiding the laws after her. And she ends up at Highgate House with Mr. Thornfield. And I think that naming is nice and clever as a governess. And so through like miss there's there's other mystery and secrets that are involved here, but she does end up taking a position at a house. With a dude who's in charge, there is a, a little bit of a love story element, but it's it's far more centered around her vigilantism and her discovering some mysteries about her past. And uh, yeah, it's it's I just remember it being a lot of fun. It's been on my list for for a while. I think I even still have a copy that I I want to pick up. I'm sorry if you already said this, but is it still, is it set in Victorian times or is it modernized? It's set in Victorian times. And I have to say, I prefer that for Jane Eyre retellings. I tried to read that. um, What was that one by Rachel Hawkins? The Wife Upstairs. I couldn't make it through. It was, it was bad. Yeah. I couldn't do it. Yeah. I just think it, I don't know. I like the. Victorian era retellings a lot more. So that's Jane Steele by Lindsay Fay. Okay. My first pairing is something that we have talked about a lot. So I want you to chime in as well, Chelsea. (laughs) But I think this book pairs so perfectly with Twilight by Stephanie Myers. It just does. It it is Twilight. (laughs) Twilight is Jane Eyre. (laughs) <laughs> it really is. And I I know that for a lot of uh, diehard Twilight fans, of which I, I am not one, I have read the whole series, um, but it, you know, I read it in my 20s and it wasn't like something I grew up loving and adoring. Um, but there is a lot of debate over like which classic romances inspire which books in the series. And some people say Twilight, the first book is a Pride and Prejudice retelling. I don't see that. <laughs> to me, it is 100% way more Jane Eyre. Um, his name is even Edward. I mean, I mean, it's just, it's all there. We have this shy, kind of mousy, bookish girl who shows up at a new place. She meets this man who is much older than her. <laughs> and um, is very kind of gruff and dismissive at first. He has a very dark secret that turns out to be extremely dangerous for our young heroine. They are 
separated because of his secret, but there's this spiritual, otherworldly connection between them. There's another guy who comes in the mix, even though this is flipped in the case of Jacob and Edward in Twilight. There's all this fire and ice imagery between the two main male protagonists. I realize that I've not given a summary of Twilight, but I figured I don't. You don't need to. to. Okay, good. (laughs) I'm just making my case for why it's a good pairing. Um, So even if, you know, Stephanie Myers did not sit down with like a Jane Eyre kind of outline in mind for this, it just seems so clear to me. This is an example of genre fiction that is very much inspired by the tropes of classic literature. And I'm I'm not even giving this as a pairing in terms of a pitch to read Twilight or revisit it through this lens, but I find this kind of thing incredibly fascinating and often more interesting than when literary fiction takes on the shape of classic literature. But that when we see YA, we see genre fiction, books that are meant to be read for fun and are insanely popular, once again, following those tropes of classic literature. I mean, that's what this podcast is all about. It's just so cool. I love that pairing for that reason. And I think you can totally carry it through the entire series. I mean, there are, I don't remember which book that Bella is separated from Edward and she, they have this sense about each other. Like she hears him and she's yeah, on this journey know when each other's in distress, no matter where yes. they are. Yeah. And she has to undergo a transformation to be equal to him mm-hmm. because he's a vampire and there are all these superpowers that he has that she doesn't have. And, the repressed desire. Um, well, yeah. <laughs> alone <laughs> is <the> enough. To <laughs> There's so much that connects. And I think that's really fun. And it's a, a perfect pairing, I think, to at least mention in the classroom because kids will be familiar with Twilight. If not for reading the books, they're watching the movies on Netflix, apparently, mm-hmm. according to what I've seen, not on TikTok, but like from people reposting about <laughs> about Gen Z on TikTok. <laughs> they think they discovered Twilight. We'll let them have it. That's fine. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> Enjoy. <laughs> All right. But I get my skinny jeans. Yeah. <laughs> never, never getting rid of those. All right. Well, for that one too, I just, do, I do want to say, listeners, if you do, or if you're a big Twilight fan, or you decide to pick up Twilight and read it like this. We want to we want to hear about that. Please please do tell us what you think and what other connections you can make between Jane Eyre and Twilight. Yes. All right, Chelsea, what is your next pairing? I have a French novella in translation for us. Ooh, fun. And Sarah, I think you would really really like it. So I might just pop it in the mail. <laughs> I I think you would so like it. And it's like 100 pages. It's a really quick read. This is The Governesses by Anne Sayre. And Mark Hutchinson is the translator. 
And actually, it was first published in 1992, so we could even technically cover it as a modern classic if we felt like it. But it is this large country house, and it's kind of, there's like this gated garden. There is kind of a fairy tale vibe to it. There are three governesses, and they not only teach the children, but they have the freedom to kind of like run around the house and plan parties and do what they want to. There's a lot of interesting color imagery with what color dresses they're wearing. There is a lot about sexual desire and how it comes out for these three governesses. This is like a pretty spicy, uh, racy uh, novella, I have to say. I don't, it's not I don't think that the sex scenes are like described in depth or anything. It's a hundred pages. There's just not enough room for all that. Um, but it is quite sexual, just so everyone's aware. But it's it really weird. It's really weird. It's not maybe not as gothic as Jane Eyre, but the it's more fairy tale, I would say. More French fairy tale, a little bit less gothic. Um, I mean, I think Charlotte Bronte would probably hate this book, partly because it's French, but also just the way that the governesses behave. <laughs> the writing is really great. It's just sensual and atmospheric and totally sucked me in. It's dreamy. I think that you could really pair this with Angela Carter's short stories as well. And so I think... I mean, the reasons that it pairs with Jane Eyre are maybe a little bit more surface level. First of all, Jane was teaching French, so I think it's reasonable to include a French novel or novella in here. It's about governesses in a big mansion, and I do think that some of the sort of like repressed desires and sensuality that that theme that's threaded throughout here are, that's tied to Jane Eyre in many ways, but it's a lot of fun. And like I said, that just like fairy tale feeling, it felt like such a perfect fall one sitting read. So if you do end up reading it, Sarah, I would be so curious to hear what you think. That is The Governesses by Anne Sarah. I definitely want to read it now. That sounds great. All right. My next pairing is White is for Witching by Helen Oyeyemi. I, I think it's best to go into Helen Oyeyemi's novels a little bit without too much knowledge of the plot because they're just, they're always wild rides. And the way she gets you where she wants you to go is very inventive and purposeful and like half of why you read them is for the the atmosphere and the the writing. But this book is very much a gothic fairy tale plot. And so I think it is a great one to pair with Jane Eyre. It is about the Silver family. They live in this huge um huge house, very mysterious, lots of secret passages and, you know, long corridors to explore. There are um, 
the the book centers around a young woman named Miranda and Miranda has lost lost her mother and she she spends a lot of time wandering the house in the same way that Jane does where kind of the wandering um seems to exemplify her searching her own mind and her own own soul one of the very kind of gothic and eerie things about Miranda is she has pica, which is that uh, eating disorder or illness where you f- want to eat things that are not food. To me, this is very much a like gothic fairy tale symbolism sort of thing for a woman desiring and, and desiring things that she doesn't have easy access to or that the world does not want her to have. And so I think thematically it pairs so well with Jane Eyre, which is also about a woman who desires what she can't have, doesn't really know how to get it. And that comes out through all of this like great symbolic um, imagery throughout, throughout the book. This book doesn't have a, a real Victorian setting, but there's also some spiritualism going on here. Miranda kind of slowly fades and there are her spirit is a character in the novel as well as other characters spirits and we didn't touch on spiritualism because it's not an important part of Jane Eyre maybe except for Rochester's voice reaching her across the moors but that's one of to me the most interesting aspects of Victorian England was that it was this very prim and proper society who was they were very Christian and committed to religiosity and they love to have seances. <laughs> and so that element of, of this book kind of speaks to that, that time period as well. So mostly this, this doesn't have a Jane Eyre like plot really in, in any real way to me, but it is a Gothic fairy tale retelling that is posing feminist questions and concerned with female desire. And so for that reason, uh, White is for Witching is my next pairing for Jane Eyre. Okay, I'm going to keep my last one pretty quick because it's another retelling, so that doesn't need a whole lot of explanation. But I will say, if you are someone who loves classic literature heroines, heroines from history, and you're looking for a read or a series of reads that are just pure fun and delight and a romp, you really need to try the Lady Janie's series. This is a series by a trio of authors, Cynthia Hand, Jody Meadows, and Brody Ashton. And the second one is My Plain Jane, and it is a retelling of Jane Eyre, and she can see ghosts. So we're just taking the gothic elements up way, <laughs> way up, <laughs> and the best part of these novels, I think, is just the witty sense of humor. They're great to listen to on audio for that reason. I highly recommend the audiobook versions, but they're just so fun. And with any retelling, I think the fun of it is just picking up on what are the authors doing with the original text? What are they trying to say through the changes that they make? And in this case, it's YA. And so I think there's another layer of, okay, well, how are they trying to make Jane Eyre 
accessible or relevant for a younger audience or not a younger audience because a lot of teenagers read Jane Eyre, but you know what I mean for, for the young adult audience. And I just really, really love this series. I think that I might've even stopped after number two. And I just, I, so I have a couple more to read. They're still writing them and they're just delightful, but I really enjoyed my plain Jane. And again, it's Cynthia Hand, Jody Meadows and Brody Ashton. Such a fun series. Oh, that sounds really fun. All right. My final pairing is The Woman Upstairs by Claire Massoud. Okay. Not The Wife Upstairs by Rachel Hawkins, which is the Southern retelling of Jane Eyre. Not The Mad Woman Upstairs, which is a book about a Bronte descendant and scholar who goes to Oxford (laughs) to study the Brontes. And Not the Mad Woman in the Attic, which is that thousand-page book of criticism about Jane Eyre. (laughs) The Woman Upstairs. (laughs) It is not a Jane Eyre retelling, but I think even the title tells us to be clued in to what this book might be doing and saying about some of the same things that Jane Eyre is. So this book, I loved it when I read it maybe six, seven years ago. I have not revisited it. I don't know how it stands up. I do remember it being a difficult read and probably not something that's right for everyone because it is, it's weird and it's dark. But it follows a woman named Nora. She's approaching 40, I believe. She's single. She's like done everything right in her life and she's angry. I think the book like literally starts out with her listing the reasons that she's so angry that the world has betrayed her in all of these, these various ways. She teaches elementary school and she doesn't really enjoy it. Um, and she also is an artist and this is probably my most vivid memory from this book is she has a series of art projects, installations that she's working on called A Room of One's Own, where she makes miniature dioramas of female writers' spaces. And I'm pretty sure she even has like a miniature diorama of the Bronte parsonage. Um, so she's an artist. She wants to that's what she wants to do, but she's teaching school and she ends up getting very immersed in the lives of a family of one of her students who are very successful artists. And they, you know, so the power dynamic is astronomical there. And she just gets totally wrapped up in their lives. They make her feel seen and special and valued. And so she starts kind of behaving in these ways that maybe maybe she wouldn't otherwise. And then there's a horrible betrayal that takes place that kind of shatters the illusion of what this group of people thought they had. Nora's obsession with this family so reminds me of Jane's obsession with Rochester, the way that she kind of ignores some warning signs because of the way they make her feel so special and so seen for the first time. The book also 
is exploring interesting questions about women and art that I'm I'm sure that I mean Jane is an artist too. We didn't talk about her paintings, but that's very important to her her character. And of course, Charlotte Bronte is a woman novelist at a time that that was less common. Those are important questions to her. So I think that in a very different way, like this book doesn't really get into questions of romantic love, but it does get into questions of power and um, privilege and female uh, and women's agency in interesting ways like, like Jane Eyre does. So I really loved this one. It is The Woman Upstairs by Claire Massoud. I like how our pairings, um, Jane Eyre is like, it's a book that we can both very much appreciate from our somewhat varied reading tastes, but I like how our pairings are very us. Yes. (laughs) I'm like, I'm going to take Jane Eyre and make it witty and like lighter. And Sarah's like, here are the books that are, you know, dark and weird (laughs) and keep with the comic elements. Yes. It's just... It's fun. So whatever you loved about Jane Eyre or hated, <laughs> there's yeah. something here for you. <laughs> I do have a really quick pick of the week. I have Great. an extra book to recommend. It's another very light, fun one. Okay. Really loose Jane Eyre. It's not even a retelling. It's just a little bit inspired. There are lots of Jane Eyre references. It's a historical romance novel. What? A Difference a Duke Makes by Lenora Bell. <laughs> it's really fun. So in this historical romance novel, there's a governess and you kind of get like some glimpses at her previous life that hint a lot about Jane Eyre-ish stuff. And she ends up on the doorstep of Edgar Rochester, a duke and powerful man in England. And he's got twins. I think he's a widower and he needs some help. Her name is Mari Perkins, which sounds a lot like Mary Poppins. (laughs) And she is a lot like Mary Poppins. So (laughs) this combines just a bunch of different governess tropes, which I think is really interesting. And... I mean, I'm sure you probably could draw a line from Jane Eyre to Mary Poppins if we really wanted to. So I I just found this to be such a fun book. And I think it handles the issue of how does a governess fall in love with her employer and vice versa? And how do we make that okay? So What a Difference a Duke Makes by Lenora Bell. It's really fun. Lots of Jane Eyre references. So if you need maybe a palate cleanser after Jane Eyre and all of the gothic Victorian stuff that we've got going on, and you want a quick read that still hints at things and will be fun to pick up on, I think that that book by Lenora Bell would be a lot of fun. My pick of the week is an extra book as well. It is Glass Town by Isabel Greenberg, and it's a graphic novel. It is about um the Bronte children's imaginary world that they invented together called Glastown. And Glastown was like the capital city of their whole country that they created <laughs> together. They would um they would play with these like little toy soldiers. They would pretend to be in their world of Angria, but then they would write these stories and that's really how they played was like like novelizing 
their fictional world. They would take on the roles of characters and write letters to each other in those characters' voices. They were imaginative (laughs) and a little weird. Um, But this graphic novel kind of explores that whole world. We have Charlotte Bronte as the main character, and the world is trying to like pull her back in as she's trying to kind of leave it behind. It's just, it's really fun. The illustrations are so cool. You learn a little bit about the Bronte family without having to read a dense biography. And yeah, their their whole imaginary world is one of the most interesting things about the family, I think. And this book is a fun way to explore it. So it is Glass Town by Isabel Greenberg. That wraps up our Jane Eyre conversation, but we're not really done talking about this book. We will be discussing Jane Eyre with Classics Club on Patreon, and that is on September 29th. So join us on Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern time. If you want to chat about this book further, we're really excited to talk with Classics Club and dig deeper into all the things that we couldn't cover on the podcast. There is also just a bunch. We have a bunch of classes over there now. We have like a whole backlog going. So if you're interested in taking some classes and you haven't been able to get to them yet, when you sign up at patreon.com slash novel pairings, you can get plugged into all of our bonus content over there, including the classes, the bonus episodes, and of course, book club events. You can also be the first to know about our Classics Club schedule and get extra insights into the podcast and the books we cover by subscribing to our weekly newsletter at novelpairings.substack.com. And we can't wait to hear about your experience reading Jane Eyre, so be sure to tag us on Instagram at novelpairingspod when you share your thoughts. Thank you to Miles Eichner and Mark Anderson for our theme music. Next week, we'll be back with a TBR toppling episode about the backlist books we hope to read this fall. Until then, we declare after all, there is no enjoyment like reading. How much sooner one tires of anything than of a book. Mm-hmm.